You're listening to The Nobody Zone, episode 5. You will need to have heard the first four episodes before this one, if you haven't heard them already. Before we get this episode started, I want to read to you from a newspaper article published in the Dublin Evening Herald on October 6th, 1953. Here goes. 25-year-old Kieran Kelly, no business, of 43 Harcourt Street, was charged with stealing a violin cello, a bow and a violin valued at £75. Describing the arrest, Detective Officer Lang said that they went to the defendant's house and saw him some distance away on the other side of the street. He apparently recognised them as police officers and ran away. In so doing, he was struck by a motor van on the leg. Fortunately, he was not injured, but Kelly then ran into the Chalmont Street area. After a chase of about four or five hundred yards, they lost him. Detective Officer Doris found him in a tenement building later, and it was there that he resisted arrest. Kelly was remanded in custody on bail of £50. The defendant's father said he would like to have him medically examined. He had been acting strangely of late, and the father did not wish to pay bail for him at present. What went through your mind after that one then, Kelly? Because you went back home after that, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I went back for a while, yeah. You, you went away a few times over there? Yeah, that's, that's starting me panicking, like, you know. Who did you murder or are you a spy? I'm just fond of a drink, helps me laugh, helps me cry. No, but just drink red biddy for a permanent tie. I laugh a lot less, I cry till I die Oh, I'm sorry. I give all for the price In that newspaper article, Kelly's father says he won't pay bail and he says he wants his son examined because he's been acting strangely of late He doesn't really seem to want him around It does sound like Kelly's acting paranoid Sounds like he's been changed by something. And the date, October 1953, that's just a few short months after Kieran Kelly says he killed his best friend, Christy Smith, in the London Underground. However, as we heard last time, the police were unable to find any evidence that that man, Christy Smith, had died on the Underground or anywhere else in 1953. They had trouble finding any evidence that he'd ever even existed. So, just as the police were back in 1983, we are faced with the possibility that Kieran Kelly is simply delusional and that Christy Smith may be just a figment of his imagination. Ian Brown, the man in the room, the policeman Kelly actually confessed to, has his own thoughts on the subject. I think he killed Christy Smith. I think Christy Smith existed because that's where all the confessions start and if that's a lie so is everything else and yeah we know that Kelly always refers to Christy Smith as being the start of it all 
So here's the question. Christy Smith, can we prove that he existed and, in so doing, prove that Kelly's confessions are indeed true? Let's look at the best, in fact the only piece of evidence we have so far that Smith did exist, that confession tape. Did Ian Brown miss anything back then? All right, then Mr Brown's going to ask you now about Christy Smith. And go over that again. At the point that Brown is talking to Kelly here on the tape, he already knows that the investigation is turning up a blank on Christy Smith. So he's asking Kelly a few questions to try and get some other names and some other details that might give him some better leads. What happened to, what happened to Kathleen? And they never saw her again after that? Never seen her after that. Never seen her. Did she know what happened? I don't... I, honestly, I don't really know now. It seems there was someone else with Kelly and Christy Smith who'd come over from Ireland with them, a woman called Kathleen. And did she... She came from the same area, did she? No, she came from Cork. From Cork? Yeah, from Tom. Were they going out together? They were going out together. She was on the game. She was on the game? The two of them, two boys was on the game. What, the one that you brought over as well? He brought, he brought the three of us over. So there were two women who travelled over with Kelly and Smith. They were both on the game, as Kelly says, both prostitutes. So we have a group of four young people, Kelly would be 23 around this time, trying to make their way with petty crime and whatever else they can think of to make some money. And it seems their first port of call in the UK was Liverpool. Because at that time I didn't like Liverpool because Liverpool was a bit rough at that time. But Liverpool hadn't worked out. Kelly says it was too rough in Liverpool. That's where all the cotton started. Yeah. The next stop was Manchester, where Kelly says the two women had tried their luck again as prostitutes. And in the, in the square in Manchester, three o'clock in the morning, they were it. It seems things got tense between the four of them. Smith and his girlfriend, Kathleen, Kelly and the other girl. So it's all right, you coming over with a bloke and a girl, and they're fucking arguing all the time, and you book, in, you book in with them. You're sleeping in one room with them, and they're still fucking arguing. So your head starts fucking going. So you say, fuck it, I'm pulling out. So they head south to London, following Kelly's lead. So you came down to London? So I said, fuck it, I said, I'm, I'm away. So she said, well, I'm going with you too. So he said, uh, uh, I'll go too. Now, she was coming, coming over to my side, which I fucking didn't want her. You didn't want her? Didn't want her, no. I could have the, the bunk up on any time I wanted, or the other one, but I didn't fucking want her. Kelly says she kept coming over to my side, by which she means... She was coming on to him, and he could have had a bunk-up. He could have slept with either of the two girls. But he wasn't interested. Why, because she was on the game? No. Not really that way. At some point when they're in London, the tension gets too much, and Kelly murders Smith. In the underground, according to Kelly. But that may or may not be true. And when you did, when you did Christie... Hmm. Um... Obviously, that, that played on your mind a lot, yeah? And that played on my mind. The bottom line is that Kelly gets away with it. He keeps quiet about what he did. He tells no one. He becomes understandably paranoid, and he's going to spend the rest of his life looking over one shoulder. When I see you, love, zipping up, I'm thinking then, 
they're going to nick you for that. Yeah. Kelly doesn't know what happened to Kathleen or the other woman. He says he never saw him again. So you don't know what happened to her after that? She could have stayed in London, she could have gone back to Ireland? She could have stayed in London, pick up, you know, you know what prostitutes do, pick up. I don't know when she went back to Ireland because she was in, she knew the mother now, Chrissy Smith's mother now. She knew Paul Smith. So someone called Kathleen, who didn't know what happened to Christy, knew Christy's mother and someone called Paul Smith. He's talking about Christie's family here. The police didn't follow that lead in 1983, but we have. When I say we, I mean the entire team at RTE's Dockham One, of course. They've been digging around in every archive that would let them in, looking for everything they can find connected to Kelly, and of course, anything they can find that might point towards Christy Smith. This is journalist and documentary maker, Nicolene Greer. I've become a little bit obsessed with finding Christy Smith over the last couple of months. Um. <laughs> Just a quick note here, in case you're not Irish. You might not know that Christy is a common Irish short version of the name Christopher. You also might not know that Smith is probably the most common surname there is in the United Kingdom, and it's very common in Ireland too. It starts as a, a bit of a needle in a haystack looking for records of Christy Smiths in Ireland and in Dublin. But if you go to the UK and start looking, it becomes a needle in a really big haystack. To cut a very long story short, Nicolene and the team looked very hard but found nothing that matched the death of Christy Smith in London or anywhere else in the UK. Same result as the police had in 1983. So the next place to go is back to Ireland to see if it's possible to track down a birth certificate. That would at least prove that Christy Smith had been born. Kelly and Smith were friends of a similar age, so this helps. Kelly's birth certificate did show up. We know that he was born in 1930, so Smith must have been born around that time too. Between 1927 and 1934, I found... 28 Christopher Smiths. Nicolene needs to find a Christopher Smith who can match up with Kelly by age and location. There's eight in Dublin, and of those eight in Dublin, there are four in Dublin 8. Just four Christy Smiths to choose from in south-central Dublin. There are assumptions that we're making here, and, you know, they're dangerous things to make. Um, we don't have to make assumptions about everything. We know that Kelly lived at 43 Harcourt Street in south-central Dublin in 1953. We know that for sure because of the newspaper article and electoral records. If Kelly and Smith were friends, it's more than likely, given the way Dublin was back in the 1950s, that they lived reasonably close by. So, now we come to the crunch. We did find one clue on the police tape. Paul Smith. She knew Paul Smith. She knew Paul Smith. Kelly's saying she, Kathleen, knew Paul Smith. None of the Christie Smiths Nicolene could find had a father called Paul Smith. So, could Paul Smith be Christie Smith's brother? Luckily, 
Paul was not such a common name for a baby boy born around this time. There's about five or six Paul Smiths born around that time, but what I was looking for was somebody whose mother had the same maiden name as one of the Christopher Smiths that I had found. It's a bit complicated what Nicolene's doing here, but basically, just by looking at birth certificates, if she can match the maiden names of the mothers of her five Paul Smiths to the maiden names of the mothers of any of her four Christopher Smiths, we'll know if they were brothers. Nicolene found just two maiden names that could be a match. There was Dunn and there was Hanley. So, first of all, actually got the, the Dunn birth certificate and, no, it was a different Dunn. So, the next one was Hanley and went in and got Paul Smith, whose mother was a Hanley, got his birth certificate and, yes, it was Kathleen Hanley, the same mother as one of my Christopher Smiths. The address was the same, 12 Upper Bridge Street, Dublin 8. The father was the same, James Smith, a labourer. So this was pretty exciting. So there was a young man called Christy Smith who had a brother called Paul who lived in the same area of Dublin as Kieran Kelly did. This Christy Smith was born in December 1933 to a poor family of seven. Paul was his younger brother. Christy Smith would have been 19 and a half in the summer of 1953. Kelly was 23. We could find no later records in Ireland that relate to this Christy Smith. But there is one piece of possible evidence that did show up. There's one more clue. There's a newspaper article that we found from 1951 which names a 17-year-old Christopher Smith in trouble with the law for stealing from a car. The dates match in terms of him being 17 in 1951 would match with his date of birth being December 1933. This Christie, 17 and in trouble with the law, could very easily have known Kieran Kelly. They walked the same streets at the same time. Smith and Kelly. Not averse to a bit of criminal activity, they decide to travel to England with the two girls and try to make some money any way they know how. But only Kelly returns and when he does, he's acting strangely, changed by something. Maybe, like the mysterious Kathleen he talks about, he still knew Christy Smith's mother and his little brother Paul. Knowing that he'd murdered Christy Smith, and terrified of being found out, maybe petrified that Kathleen herself might suddenly show up again, suspecting something. That would play on his mind for sure. That's all conjecture, of course, but we finally do have some facts, at least, that suggest that Kieran Kelly was not lying about Christy Smith. And just as Ian Brown does, we can believe Kelly when he says that he killed him. It had to be, in my opinion, Kelly murdered Smith. How? Where? I honestly don't know. But how could Kelly, or anyone else in fact, explain the disappearance of Christy Smith? Why wasn't he missed? Here's Nicolene Greer again. You might think that if a family with a son 
just if the son just disappeared, that they would be then calling the police and putting in a missing persons record. But, you know, Ireland in that time, there was so much poverty. There was so many men were leaving Ireland and going to England to get work um, further afield as well, going to America, getting on boats and going away. And, you know, it wasn't that uncommon for men to go away and to never be heard of again. You know, there was a huge amount of shame involved as well that they had gone away and maybe life hadn't life hadn't panned out the way they had wanted it to. So, you know, it's not unthinkable that a man would go to the UK, go to England or London and that the family wouldn't necessarily hear from them again and that they mightn't think that that was unusual. And people could just disappear off the radar, particularly particularly single men, actually, I think it's fair to say. And that could be what happened to Christy Smith. So Kelly had, without knowing, without planning it, chosen the perfect victim for getting away with murder. That's something he'd repeat time and time again. He'd killed someone who didn't count, somebody who wasn't missed. As far as the victim's family knew, it just disappeared. Maybe they hoped he was making it rich somewhere on the other side of the world. But of course, Kieran Kelly knew better. Kieran Kelly knew he was dead because he'd murdered him in London and he'd gotten away with it. Kelly says, I got away with it for years. And ultimately, I thought, well, who cares if I kill somebody? Doesn't matter. I've got away with it. And he, what had he got away with? Christy Smith. It all goes, everything goes back to Christy Smith. When Kelly says that Killing Smith started it all in 1953, he's talking about what happened next. And we know quite a lot about what happened next, Kelly's life story. We know that Kelly was born in Rathdowney in the Midlands of Ireland, County Leash. We know the family moved to Dublin and he's confirmed in a church in Dublin, age 12. We also know he joined the British Army when he was 18, the Irish Guards Regiment. He was booted out of the army in 1951 after going absent without leave in Dublin for nearly a whole year. After 1953, after he murders Smith, he'd go to jail three times in Ireland in the 1950s. He'd get two years for that theft in 1953, the one in the newspaper article. He'd get nine months just after that for over 40 counts of theft and housebreaking in 1956. He'd go back inside again in 1957 for another two years. Kelly quit Ireland for good and went to England in 1960, 30 years old. And things started looking up for Kelly. We found out that Kelly was married in 1961 in Camberwell, London, to an Irish woman. His marriage was unusual for the times, as his bride already had five children by her previous husband, including a new baby. But Kelly stepped up and became the man about the house and fathered two children of his own with this woman. 
During this period, Kelly is on the straight and narrow. He's supporting a family with seven kids and there are no criminal convictions for a four-year period. But in 1964, it seems Kelly's marriage failed and Kelly was out. There are plenty of criminal charges, mostly for offenses connected to drunkenness and theft throughout the rest of the 1960s. Kelly finally ended up in Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital in 1969 after attacking a woman in her own home with a knife. He's in Broadmoor when he turns 40. And that's the Kelly paper trail up to that point in his life. It's mostly a list of all the bad stuff Kelly did that he got caught for. But it's not really a full description of the man. There's a whole side missing, of course. The side you'd only know about if you'd actually known Kelly. You know, when he was sober, let's say now he hadn't a drink for a day or two, and he walked in here, you couldn't ask us to speak to a nicer fella. And we found someone who did know Kelly around this time. And he was polite when he was sober, but when he had a drink or two, he's a different human being altogether. You know, chalk and cheese, or what's the other phrase people use? Oh, the guy that's, oh, what's his name, Jekyll and Hyde. He was a typical Jekyll and Hyde. There's a very peculiar reason why we actually managed to even meet this man. His name is Brian Sliman. He's a builder and he's Irish, but he's lived and worked in South London since the late 1960s. The peculiar part is that he's also the man who the journalist and documentary maker Robert Mulhern, who we've met in previous episodes, called up one day when he needed some building work doing on his house. This happened just last year. Here's Rob to explain how it happened. He's doing the job on the house, finishes the job. And me and my wife say, listen, let's bring him out for dinner and... Um, just thank him for the work. and uh, Sitting in a pub, they got into telling stories. He goes, I'll tell you another one. Um, I actually worked with a guy who got sent down for a double murder. Hold on a minute, what was his name? He kind of stopped and he was like, uh, he was, his name was Ken. I was like, Ken who? He was like, Ken Kelly. And I was like, Ken Kelly? You mean Kieran Kelly? And he was like, yeah, Kieran Kelly, Ken Kelly, Mad Ken. It's a bizarre coincidence. After all of Rob's research, all his hard work looking into Kelly, Sliman just lands in his lap. Rob and Sliman just look at each other for a second. And he was like, how do you know Kieran Kelly? And I was like, well, how do you know Kieran Kelly? I was like, I'm making a documentary about him. I've been searching for years for somebody who knew him. And he was like, well, I knew Ken. He worked for me for four years. We were just quiet for a second and like... I think I had my iPhone there and I brought up a portrait picture of Kelly, like head and shoulders image, and Simon was like, that's him, yeah, that's him. A few days later and Rob shows up at Brian Sliman's house to hear the story of the man Sliman described as a real Jekyll and Hyde character. Uh, there's Brian here, is he? Yeah, hang on a yeah. sec. Uh, looks like you've got BBC News here, Peter. Yeah. Guy from Wacker, Francis. Good Brian Sliman remembers the very first time he met Kieran Kelly. Sometime in the early 1970s, this would be not long after Kelly had been released from Broadmoor. First time, yeah, I was in the uh, house in Balham again, and uh, we were stripping out, some of the lads were stripping out, and there was dust everywhere. So I went, it was summertime, I went out for a cigarette, and uh, I was by the front gate, and we just had a skip delivered. So I'm having a cigarette, covered in dust, 
and this racket three doors up from me. A guy boxing, punching, a hoarding around the house that was derelict. And he's battling the fence, which was covering Galvin eyes. And I said, he looked at me. He walked down, he stood in front of me. Hair down in his eyes, hands clenched, red in the face. He said, any work going here? And I said, can you fill a skip? He said, yes. I said, be here at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I chucked my cigarette in the bin, in the skip. And I walked back into the house. Anyway, he went away, disappeared. The next morning, and about a quarter to eight, I got to the house. And here he was sitting outside the house. I thought, that's not the guy from yesterday, because he's totally different. And he quite smiling. He says, uh, we met yesterday. Uh, is the work still on? I said, OK, then. So I took him in, told him what he had to do. Filled up a skip to go to the plaster off the walls, rotted floorboards to come out. Without particularly high hopes, Slyman returned later the same day to check on the job and check on Kelly. Went down to the job, and there I got to the job. He was sitting, having a cigarette. And the skip was full. I mean, way above, really filled. I couldn't believe it when I seen it. When I walked into the house, I said, you should have finished it. This was gone six o'clock now. That time we walked from eight to six. I said, you should have gone at six. No, he said, I was just having myself a cigarette. I, went, I couldn't believe inside. He had this clean, and he had tidied up the garden. I couldn't believe it. He'd done three days' work. Everything was as neat and as clean as a whistle. So that's how he started working for me. Slyman's the kind of man who'll give anyone a fair chance if they put in a good day's work. And Kelly had just put in three days' work in one. He was a good worker. The only thing, I couldn't leave him on his own because half he'd be, he'd be gone. But when he was with me, he was always on time, clean, doing a good day's work, but just couldn't leave him on his own. Never worked. I'd done it a few times and he'd gone to the pub and that'd be it. Slyman wasn't aware that Kelly had been in prison many times when he met him, though he might well have guessed. And I've seen once or twice where he was, he had a black eye where he got into trouble over weekends and things like that, but it didn't seem to bother him. Over the next few years, Kelly became a regular with Slyman, and Slyman got to know him well, even invited him home several times. Kelly was actually popular with Slyman's own kids. Every child liked him for some reason, even my eldest son. He said, I thought he was OK. Of all the people who used to come to the house, because in them days I had lots of people bloke coming, you know, different types of workers. But Ken, he was always liked, and all young kids liked him. And he loved kids. You'd never dream of thinking he'd harm anybody. That's the, the type of guy he was. I mean, he sounded very charming. Oh, he could be very charming. Kelly was also popular among his workmates, especially in the pub after work. He used to do a party piece in pubs where young know, people get up and just do a song or something. Yeah. But he used to imitate me all over here. He'd commentate on a football match. Leaves Paddy Megan, races down the wing, dodges his way through, a hard shot towards the goal. Morris saves, but Bill Hastie is in, and the ball is in the net for a goal that puts me on the highway. And he'd make the offer as he said he was going along. That was his party piece. People used to beg him to go up and do it. But if he was too drunk, he wouldn't be able to do it. So you had to get him at the right, at the right time, you know what I mean? Will he be satisfied with the point, with that line of defence in front of him? At this stage of the game, I'm sure he will. Let's wait and see. Slyman got to know both sides of Kelly, his Jekyll and Hyde character. He remembers a time when Kelly completely lost it, 
while he was at work. Kelly was at the bottom of a hole, digging a tunnel under a house to find a broken drain, right under the standpipe for all the bathrooms and all the toilets in a small block of flats. And on their tile seats, I put a notice, please do not flush until these signs are removed. One of the ladies on the first floor used the loo and flushed it, and he's down in a hole. And he couldn't escape from it, right down on top of him. And he started screaming. Now, he wasn't drunk or anything. He was absolutely foaming at the mouth. I had to hold him down the hole with a shovel. So the husband came out, and the husband here was a big fat fella, and he's screaming down at him. And I pushed him, I said, get, please get away to hell out of here. I said, get indoors, lock the damn door. Because I knew this man had lost it completely. Now looking back, he wanted to kill them. Luckily, Slyman is a big man and he was armed with a shovel. Kelly is a very small man, skinny, and he was at the bottom of a muddy hole. So Slyman could keep him in the hole until he calmed down. And when he cooled down, I had to leave him down there for half an hour because I thought he might even kill me. He was foaming. Eventually, I got him to quieten down and got him out of the hole. But that night, I'm convinced now, knowing what you've told me about what he's been accused of, that if I hadn't been there and he got out of the hole, he would have killed him, I think. I've never seen a man in that anger as he was that night. Because he was a tough, he wasn't a big fella, but he was a tough cookie. I mean, he was no, he was no pushover, as they say. So I'm looking back and I think, you know, did they actually save their lives? I probably did. So Slyman's intervention might just have saved everyone from a very dangerous Kelly that day, who was literally foaming at the mouth with anger. But it wasn't always bad news and bad times for Kelly. Kelly had a way with women, it seems. Slyman remembers one time Kelly got himself into a comfortable situation with a woman living next door to a job they were doing. So he had to dig a hole again. And I had to go away. I said, look, I won't be back later. And uh, when I got back, the tools were there. The hole was covered, and he's Wellingtons, but no sign of him. So I searched, I went, where could he have gone to? Especially with, I know he had no shoes with him. So I'm down to the local pub, no sign of him. I thought, where has he gone to? He can't have gone home without his Wellingtons. Anyway, I went back to the job, and, there's a, and I seen the lady looking out from next door, an elderly lady, I thought. So I knocked, she came to the door, I said, you haven't seen the guy that was working here today? Oh yes, she's in here. He's having some tea. So she brought me, and there he was sitting at the table. She had given him dinner. He wasn't drinking tea, he was having a beer. I couldn't believe it. So he says, I've moved in here. So they're shacked up together. A nice-looking woman. I mean, you wouldn't have put the two of them together if you'd seen them. But she was an alcoholic, I think. Oh, mother dear, I'm over here. I never will come back. What keeps me here is a rank of beer. The ladies and the crack. This was a common occurrence, apparently. Kelly would charm his way in somewhere. He'd shack up with someone. And then, before long, there'd come a time when it was time for Kelly to leave again. They had a big falling out. She wouldn't let him in. So he took the horsehead off, pushed into the letterbox. He turned the horsehead on and full blast went into the flat. He hadn't been back after that. That was the last time he went there. That's the type of, you know what I mean? And he'd be sober now when he'd done that. Kelly would go off the radar from time to time. But then he'd show up again, ready for work, weeks or sometimes even months later. 
Sliman would assume he'd either be on a bender drinking or he'd been shacked up with someone he could drink with. What's really hard to believe here, not least for Brian Sliman, is that during this period, when Kelly was off the radar, he was killing people. It's during the time he worked for Sliman that Kelly was originally picked up by police in connection with the murder of Hector Fisher. But he managed to sober up that time. He changed his clothes. He denied any knowledge to the police. Hector Fisher was in 1975, but Kelly confessed to committing three murders back in 1973. All three of them were unknown homeless men who he'd beaten or stabbed to death. All of this was happening at the same time he was working for Sliman. Kelly was good at this Jekyll and Hyde act, unless he lost his temper. There was an event that happened around this time that really sticks out for Sliman. Kelly had been staying with another woman until they too fell out. The woman he stayed with, her daughter, passed some comments on Ken. And there was a guy there who used to, he used to work for a, a chocolate firm. And he had a van. He used to park his van in there. And Ken got drunk. Spotted his man with a chocolate van. And I know that he threatened him, but your man was scared of him, I think. And he took him out to Reading. The drunk and furious Kelly forced the driver of a chocolate delivery van to drive him to Reading, not far from London. Gets to the house in Reading, and he went up, and he smashed through the front door to the glass door, and he smashed that. And he wrapped a TV area around her neck. Kelly's completely savage here. He wraps the cable from a TV area around a woman's neck. Luckily, her husband manages to call the police, and they arrive before he kills her. So they're arresting him, and as they're taking him out, he went into a fight with the police. Kelly didn't exactly go quietly. And they got him into a panda car, and he kicked the two side windows out of the panda car. And he went to court, and during the hearing, he jumped over the dock and pulled the cape off the judge. And then the police arrested him again, and on the way down to the cell, he broke a sergeant's arm. But not long, he was back out again, came back to me looking for work. I thought you'd have got 20 years for that. I said, no, no, I got out of it all right. I think three weeks he was away or something like that. Maybe a bit longer, but some, it wasn't long. And I says, uh, how did you get away with it? He said, no, they let me out. It's only after the dawn I got to know that he was on recall to Broadmoor. On recall to Broadmoor, the secure psychiatric hospital. It seems odd, maybe, that Kelly wasn't considered a danger to the public and he was let go from Broadmoor. But there's Jekyll and Hyde again. Presumably, Kelly was able to convince even the psychiatrist at Broadmoor that he had a gentler side and that he was in control of himself. But Kelly's self-control wouldn't last forever. Sliman's very last job with Kelly was sometime in the mid to late 70s. Sliman and his brother were fixing a roof for an elderly woman somewhere outside London. And as they'd done so many times before, they brought Kelly along to help out. I picked Ken up, he was living this time now in Fulham. Oh, about five in the morning, I think, half five in the morning I picked him up. And he was a bit pissed from the night before. Took him down to the job and uh, started ripping off the roof, getting ready. So I had to drive into the town to the, to the builder's yard to get something. When I got out back to the job, I said, I said, where's Ken? He said, I sent him home. He's no good to us, he said, you waste of time. 20 minutes later, the lady came out, she says, Mr. Slimer, somebody stole my purse. I said, what? My purse has gone missing. 
<coughs> and I think, oh, she's misled because she's an elderly woman. Oh, I said, I doubt that. I said, no, there's nobody else, us three. And she said, well, just, I had it. It was in my handbag on my, on my bedside cabinet. Anyway, we, and I said to I'll go and look for it. And she knows there's three of us, so I've got to get him back. So if I get him back, at least I can cover myself. Not for one second did I think that he'd have done something like this. Not for one second. Knowing that Kelly would often be found skulking in a pub when he'd left work early, Slyman does the rounds of all the pubs nearby, but can't find him. Until... Next thing I spotted him, coming, making for, for the station. So I jumped out of the van and... Oh, I said, Jane, how are you feeling? Oh, no, he said, I've decided to go home. I don't feel well. Well, I said, before you go home, you've got to come back. He said, oh, no, I can't, I can't go back. He said, I don't feel well. Well, I said, you have to come back. I said, the woman's accused of stealing the purse. Please come back. Then I'll drive you back. But you have to come He said, I'm not going back. On reflection, I shouldn't have said this to him, but I said, look, Ken, dead or alive, you're coming back. Whether you like it or not, you've got to come back. You owe me that. So you're coming back. Now, believe me, you're coming back. So eventually you've agreed. Anyway, we get back to the house. And there's a policeman there, sergeant. I said, Ken, empty your pockets. So he took off the money and to nearly to the coin what was missing. So I said, now, Ken, look, now, get, tell the truth now. He denied it. Now, this money nearly matched what the lady lost. He decided to arrest him. Out of the car, he had the handcuffs on him. And as he got open the back door of the car to get him in, I said, Ken, before you get into that car, I can help you now, but the second that door is closed, there's nothing I can do for you. We can sort this out here and now before it goes too far. Next thing he's crying. So I tell the truth, you t- yes. And Ken got arrested and took off to Nick. But that was the last time he worked for me. It's an odd image of Kieran Kelly crying in the back of a police car after he'd been arrested for a relatively minor offence. Especially when you consider that by this time, Kelly had already murdered several people. Kelly must have known he'd blown it. He'd be unlikely to meet anyone as generous, forgiving and friendly as Brian Sliman ever again. Kelly seems to have taken his final slide down into permanent homelessness around this time. Sliman would only see Kelly one more time in his life. He ran into him in a pub, but Kelly had become little more than a shadow. I didn't see him for a long time. <coughs> and I'm one side of this bar here. And as I'm walking down the channel, who walked the other side was Ken. And he stopped. We looked at each other. But he walked away and I thought, we never spoke. That was the last I seen him. That's a long time back. This happened several years after he'd stopped working for Sliman. Years in which Kelly had been in and out of prison. In which he'd been living rough drinking methylated spirits in churchyards, murdering people. At this point, Kelly had already been arrested and tried for the murder of Edward Toll. We heard about that in the last episode. He was accused of strangling Toll, and two witnesses saw him do it. But at this time, he was still capable of a convincing performance. When appearing in court, Kelly would still brush up pretty well, sober, clean-shaven, with neatly combed hair. In fact, it was said he'd even stand to attention in the dock, always saying yes, sir, and no, sir, like the soldier he was in his youth. The witnesses, one of whom was the unfortunate Mickey Dunn, who he'd later track down and try and poison, would t- 
turn up in court after having drunk a bottle of methylated spirits. And, as we know, the case against Kelly fell apart. By the time Kelly turns 50, he will have murdered as many as 12, 13 or 14 people, and he has disappeared deep into the nobody zone. And what do you, what do you feel now when you, when you do one? I mean, does anything go through your mind or don't you care anymore? Doesn't worry me. Doesn't worry you? No. Do you think I'm going to do a murder or do no, you? No, it would. Huh? It would now. What, today? No, I get up and walk away. Because I know now I'm, I'm clear. Kelly says on the tape that he feels clear of his crimes now, after his confessions. Ian Brown thinks that Kelly may even have felt relieved to be going to jail for the rest of his life. And one of the other things that's come across my mind is that, you know, when Kelly got caught banged to riots in the cell, I think it went through his mind, you know, I'm going away for life. And there's nothing much I can do about it, but having a bed every night and a pillow and a blanket and a mattress and food ain't going to be such a bad thing. It's actually a big improvement on what I've got now. And I think it was, you know, some of it was relief that <sighs> I'm going somewhere safe. There's a couple more significant events that we found that happened after Kelly went to jail for life in 1984. One has to do with his estranged family. He never saw much of his children after he left in 1964. We contacted his daughter, but she declined to be interviewed. We looked into Kelly's other child, his son, born just before Kelly left home back in 64. Kelly's son died, aged just 25, back in 1989. He was murdered in a bar fight in a pub in Clapham, very near the place that Kelly had killed Hector Fisher, and just a few hundred yards from where he was finally arrested. The other significant thing we found happened in 1993, when a man in Rathdowney, County Leash, was digging a hole in his garden. The garden belonged to the house that was once the childhood home of Kieran Kelly. And it's what he found in the hole he was digging that's interesting. He found what appeared to be a decomposed skeleton with a wire noose around its neck. And that's what we'll be looking into next time on The Nobody Zone. All you young people now take my advice for crossing the ocean you'd better think twice Cause you can't live without love without love alone The proof's round the west end in the nobody's home But the summer is fine but the winter's a fridge Wrapped up in old cardboard in the Charing Cross Bridge And they'll never go home now the Nobody Zone is written and narrated by Tim Hinman. Storyline and production is by Tim Hinman and Christopher Molson. 
Original idea, research and recordings are by Robert Mulhern, Ronan Kelly and Liam O'Brien. With production assistance from Sarah Blake, Donal O'Hurley, Tim Desmond, Nicolene Greer and Michael Lawless. The title music is the song Missing You performed by Christy Moore. Original music for the series is by Tim Hinman. Graphics marketing and press by John Kilkenny, Laura Beatty, Amy O'Driscoll, Nigel Wheatley, Frederick Neilbo, Jilly McDonough, Ellen Leonard, Bren Murphy and Anna Joyce. Illustrations by Alex Williamson. The Nobody Zone is a collaboration between RTE's documentary on one in Ireland and third year productions in Denmark. If you wish to join the social media conversation around this podcast, please use hashtag the nobody zone or visit rte.ie forward slash the nobody zone. And if you'd like to comment or share any information you might have on the story, we'd love to hear from you. Email us documentaries at rte.ie. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>